Good morning, everybody. I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 22. If you are joining us for the first time today or for the first time in a while, you're picking us up in the middle of a very long story in this book of 1 Samuel. And today we come to a particularly unique passage in this story. You know, for as long as we've had the Bible, there's been great fascination among people to try to figure out who the Antichrist is. You know, the Antichrist from the book of Revelation, the, the one who raises up to power and leads people against the Lord and even destroys some of the people who are following God. There's been an Antichrist suspected in nearly every generation of human history. And part of that is because of our fascination with evil and exploring evil. And part of that is seemingly that throughout much of history, people have been looking more for an antichrist than they have for Christ. Some of the leading candidates throughout history have been common names to you. The Roman Emperor Nero, Napoleon, the most obvious, perhaps, Adolf Hitler. But speculation has gone the other direction as well. Some Roman Catholics have pronounced that the Protestant reformer Martin Luther was the Antichrist. Conversely, in our day, some Protestants have proclaimed that perhaps Pope John Paul II was the Antichrist. And politicians are never far from the top of the list. Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, others have been talked about frequently in this conversation. And it seems like today that whoever emerges in a presidential election cycle in the West is looked at by some with suspicion to try to find out if they are the biblical antichrist. But did you know that the Bible not only speaks about an antichrist, but also speaks about many antichrists? And in fact, in the epistles of John, this is mentioned a number of times, and let me just read one short verse for you from 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John writes to the Christians, he says, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. An Antichrist is one marked by false teaching against God. One that's often marked by violence against God's people. One that, no matter how they appear at the beginning, ultimately stands opposed to the purposes of God. And today, as we turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 22, we see a clear example of an antichrist named King Saul. This is one of these unique chapters in the Bible where God peels back the veil of human history and great rebellion and tragedy and points us to greater spiritual reality. So I want to ask you to follow with me as we read 1 Samuel chapter 22. It's found on page 245 of your pew Bible. 
Let me set the stage for you. David has been on the run because Saul is trying to take his life. He has visited the priest Ahimelech and received bread and a sword. He fled from Saul into the land of the Philistines where he was captured, pretended to be insane and was released, and now he's in a cave with no one but the Lord. And this is what it says, starting in chapter 22. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalim. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what, the, what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet of Gad, the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest at Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree in the height with a spear in his hand, and all of his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you, every one of you, fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you are sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And then the king sent summons to Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and his father's house and the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said to him, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered him, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie and wait, as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to, this, to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, 
You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all of your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. And then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Atub, named Abiathar, escaped. And he fled to David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all of the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me you shall be in safekeeping. When you read the story, you see an immediate parallel that emerges. David appears to be the figure like Christ. And Saul appears to be an antichrist. Consider it with me. The story begins as they gathered to him. David was hiding in a cave. He had received nourishment from the priest. He had convinced the Philistine king that he was insane. He was being pursued by Saul, even to the point of his near death. And now he was alone and hiding in a cave. And then something amazing happened. His family heard where he was, and they came to him. He couldn't come to them. It wasn't safe for David to move about freely, so they came to him. But they weren't alone. They weren't the only ones to gather to him. In fact, verse 2 tells us, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. commander over them and with him were about 400 men these were the people who were on the fringes of Saul's kingdom perhaps it hadn't always been that way maybe they were merchants or farmers or laborers but they didn't fit into the plan of this king and they were the outcasts of society they lived on the fringe. They had great, great need, and they recognized their great need. And they gathered to him. 
probably not the group of people you'd want to start a rebellion with. Probably not the most sophisticated or the most accomplished or the most type A's among the society. But these were the outcast and the needy. And they gathered to him. The disheartened mixture of people. It sounds an awful lot like the types of people that gathered to Jesus a thousand years later. I think of dozens of examples, but just a few. The leper in Mark chapter 1 who comes to Jesus and says, because of his disease is destined for begging at the side of the road or in a leper colony. It says, Jesus, if you would just reach out your hand, you could heal to me. You could heal me. And Jesus, taking pity on the man, healed him and made him clean. Or the Jewish tax collector who is on the outcast of his society because he works for the Romans and because he makes a good wage doing so. And upon hearing about Jesus and who he is and what he does, seeks to get a glimpse. And so the man, short of stature, climbs a tree alongside of the road to just see Jesus as he comes by, this outcast of society. And Jesus looks up at him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house for dinner today. Or the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The outcast of society riddled with guilt and great sin and multiple divorces and now living in ongoing sin. Meets Jesus at the well. And upon hearing him proclaim that he can offer water of eternal life, she believes. <laughs> and her village gathers to him. Or any of those that receive Jesus' invitation of Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. All of you disheartened, bitter of soul outcasts. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And they gathered to him. There is something about the Christ that provides for those in great need. I wonder if you might feel like an outcast. That others look at you with a cocked head and a squinted glare. That perhaps you've made some mistakes, maybe very significant mistakes, and the consequences of those mistakes are still things that you have to bear. And one of those consequences is that you feel alienated from God and alienated from others. And you think to yourself, I really don't know if there is any way back to what I used to have. And when you see your need, and particularly your need to be brought from the faraway places because of your distress, because of your debt of sin, because of your bitterness of soul, and to be brought near to God, it would seem that the answer is to gather to the Christ. 
draw near to him and to let him direct your way forward. The story continues and the scene shifts. Saul is in the picture of security. He is with his servants and he learns that David had been discovered. And so he gathers them all around for the pregame pep talk that is more like a rebuke. As he does, he perceives to there to be deception among them, a great conspiracy that is arising against him. And so look at what he says in verse 7. He says, Hear now, all you people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and hundreds? But you've conspired against me. No one discloses to me that my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. No one is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. Saul thinks that there's a massive conspiracy against him. Almost predictably, the rich king relies on the promise of giving wealth and giving comfort as motivation for his servants to be loyal to him. He says to them, if you follow me, I will give you the world. Vineyards and farms and stature and position. All to gain devotion. Now, it's not uncommon really quite a common tactic to give the promise of comfort and material goods as a ploy for the enemy to gain devotion. But Saul is starting to sound an awful lot like Satan here. When Jesus was being tempted for 40 days in the desert and it comes to its accumulation with Jesus and Satan stand on top of the temple and Satan says, I will give you the world if you just bow down and worship me. Ironically, we see these words of Saul becoming him admitting that the prophecy about the king of Israel would come true. Do you remember that prophecy way back in chapter 8 when the people of Israel asked God for a king like the nations, and God said, you don't want a king like the nations. And they said, yes, we do. And God said, I will give you a king, but he will take from you, and he will take from you, and he will take from you. What would he take? Well, chapter 8, verse 11, this will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. Verse 12, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. In verse 14, he will take the best of the, your, your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, and he will give them to his servants. And now Saul stands before, years later, these very servants, saying these very things to his servants, I will give to you the vineyards and the olive orchards and the farms, and I will make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And the prophecy comes true. The king, like the world, will take and take and, me, and even more ironically, Saul contrasts his own promises for wealth with the contrast of David. Who would not be that type of king? 
So Saul stands. After making these promises, his servants remain silent, but just one, just one speaks up. His name is Doeg. He was mentioned back in chapter 21 as witnessing what David was doing with the priest, Ahimelech, and he tells him what happened. He says, David was at Ahimelech, and Ahimelech gave him the sword, and he gave him the bread, and he sent him on his way, and Saul explodes. You can imagine it. Immediately he sends for Ahimelech and all of his father's house, and in fact, all of the priests of the city of Nob, and he brings them to himself. The priest stands before him, gives him a pretty good and reasonable explanation of what happened. He said, of course David came, and of course I served him. I had no reason to think that he would be in any way, shape, or form doing wrong. There's no conspiracy against you. He's a high-standing member of your home. He sits at your table. He's the head of your bodyguard. He's your own son-in-law. Of course I served him. But Saul rejects the priest's reasonable response. He's rejected reason before. He's rejected the opportunities to repent and follow the Lord. He's rejected the reason of the prophet Samuel. He's rejected the reason of his own son, Jonathan. And now, in the height of his rebellion against God, verse 17 says, The king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that someone who claims to be following God would line up to kill the priests of God. It's unthinkable to think that someone who claims and has the kingship over God's chosen people, Israel, would line up to slaughter the very priests of God. It's unthinkable that someone could be a farmer who's made king, who hears from the Lord, who is given great gifts and who now is in a place of complete and utter rebellion. The servants of Saul stand still at the command. Swords in their sheaths, they know there's a line and this king is way over the line. It's almost as if they hear the words of Jesus a thousand years later. It says, what good does it prosper a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? They want nothing to do with it. But Saul persists with his man, Doeg. <coughs> we can make a couple of observations about Saul's state of mind and his degradation that apply to us when in narcissistic rebellion, it's not uncommon for one to think that everybody is out to get them. 
The one who's actually in the powerful position sees himself as the one who's the victim. He's the one who's rebelled against the Lord. He's the one who's tried to kill God's anointed. He's the one who's tried to kill his very own son. And yet, somehow, he thinks he's the one who's being attacked. And now he's at the point where he does the unthinkable. And he becomes an antichrist. We could surely ask the question of how does somebody get from over here to over there? How does the degradation of sin lead you all the way down the path of that? After rejecting opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. We also see that there will ever be before us people who will promise us, maybe even antichrists, who promise us the pleasures of the world and the material comforts, demanding a specific type of allegiance to receive them. And they will appear to you at first to be for you until your allegiance is questioned. And then the revenge against you will be swift. And the application is there is no safety here. There's no safety or ultimate fulfillment in those types of promises. When you trade your soul to gain the world, you lose both your soul and the world. Think about how the story begins. The story begins with David in the place of great vulnerability. He's alone with nobody but the Lord in a cave, living in fear for his life. Contrasted with Saul, who has servants surrounding him, who's out in the open with great security in his midst. The story ends with David being surrounded by 400 and the blessing of the Lord, and Saul being surrounded by no one except for Doeg and a field of dead bodies. And if all you have at the end of your days is a doeg, you know you are in trouble. But look at where safety is found. One priest escapes. His name is Abiathar. Abiathar goes and finds David. He tells him that the king has become completely unhinged and slaughtered all the priests. And David's response to this vulnerable, scared, young priest, son of Ahimelech, is striking. He says in verse 23, Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me you shall be in safe keeping. With the anointed they are safe. With the powerful king of the land, they will die. Let's take a step back and look at the big picture. The Christ versus the Antichrist. <laughs> you see it, right? That David is the anointed, innocent one who is despised in the eyes of the worldly power, and yet people who have need gather to him, and as they gather to him, they find safety. 
Conversely, Saul, the king of the land, the one of great power who seems innocent enough at first, but this farmer turns king, turns into steep decline of rebellion against God. He's self-serving. He's self-seeking of glory. He's trying to take as many as he can with him along his chosen path, so much so that he actually murders the priests of God. He's not just against Samuel. He's not just against Jonathan. He's not just against David. He's against God, his himself, he is an antichrist. And what is God doing here? One of the incredible aspects about the Old Testament and the amount of elapsed time that a book like 1 Samuel covers is that you can take a step back and see how God is working things out in his divine initiative. There's multiple prophecies being fulfilled even in this passage. The first one is that Saul is taking the land and giving it to his servants. We've already talked about that. The second one is that the priesthood of Ahimelech is a priesthood that comes from the line of Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. Do you remember those characters from a while back? Hophni and Phinehas were bad dudes who wore the cloth of a priest, but who were very self-serving in their ways. And God judged that line of priesthood and told them that the line would come to an end, except for one who would be left to grieve. And that one, as we see here, is named Abiathar. And so you see that God uses terrible things. God even uses the terrible evils of an antichrist to accomplish a purpose that he has had for now months or years or decades before. That God in his infinite power and wisdom sees all and knows all and arranges and orders things in such a way that he accomplishes his purposes in ways that are imperceptible to us in the time but lasting effect in history. And if that doesn't make you sit back and say, how in the world could a person or a being do that? Just ponder for five minutes how big this God is and how small you are by way of contrast. And I am so thankful that God uses some of these even terrible things that I see and experience and know to accomplish purposes that are for a much greater good that I will not see and probably will never realize even this side of eternity. But his timing is perfect. It's interesting to note, of course, that David seeks safe harbor for his parents with the king of Moab, this is another one of those big step back and say, how does this fit into the plan of God? You might remember the story about David's great-great-grandmother. She was a Moabite woman named Ruth. And so David seeks safe harbor for his parents in the lineage of his great-grandmother, a princess in the eyes of God. So what do we do as a response to a passage like this. God is giving us a glimpse into salvation history, into the spiritual dynamics as they relate to the physical world. The people in the story have to choose. 
And you're going to have to choose. Will they align with the one who looks safe, who has power, who promises great pleasure and comfort, but ultimately lines up against God? Or will they align with the one who doesn't look safe, the one who looks weak, the one who looks like he doesn't have much power at all in the eyes of the world, but ultimately promises and provides safety? And I think the big idea of this passage, particularly, is a very simple and yet timely one. Friends, you will be safe with the Christ. You will be safe with Jesus. I didn't say pain-free with Jesus. Quite the opposite. The world is getting worse in some ways. Our bodies are frail in many ways. The physical struggle is real. And the spiritual struggle that you will have in this life is ever-present because there is an enemy who is trying to conquer you, to undo you, to lead you astray and against the purposes of God. And this enemy named Satan even deploys antichrists to cause you to suffer. And so Ephesians 6, 16 says, Take up the shield of faith which can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. I love Sinclair's, Sinclair Ferguson's description of the fiery darts. He says fiery dart number one is that Satan says God is against you. He's not really for you. How can you believe he is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? And the truth of this passage points us to the fact that in the midst of that fiery dart, you will be safe with Jesus. Fiery dart number two, I have accusations against you and I'm going to bring them against you because of your sins, Satan argues. What can you say in defense? Nothing. But you will be safe with Jesus. Fiery dart number three, you can say that you're forgiven, that God forgives you, but there's a payback day that is coming. A condemnation day, Satan insinuates. How will you defend yourself then? You will be safe with Jesus. Fiery dart number four, given your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere all the way to the end? Satan asks. And the answer is that you will be safe Jesus. You see, if we learn one thing from the Christ and the Antichrist is that safety is found with the Christ. <laughs> even if it's in a cave or in the forest or after a massive tragedy, even if it looks like he might be losing and the enemy is gaining great influence, even if society or culture has turned against that Christ and tried to marginalize him and his followers, even if your friends or your co-workers or your relatives or your colleagues think that you are a complete and utter fool for giving your life to him, and even if Satan accuses you in the quiet moments of your mind, again and again and again and again and again, that your guilt and your shame are ever upon you and that there is no escape from the fringes of your spiritual life back to the middle. You will be safe with Jesus. One day a friend who was filled with doubt and spiritual perplexity asked the Scottish preacher, 
McLeod Campbell, he said, Pastor, you always seem to have such a peace of soul. Tell me, how can you feel that you have such a tight hold on God? I don't feel the same way. And with a smile, Campbell exclaimed, I don't always feel like I have a tight hold of him. But praise the Lord, I know that he always has a hold of me. You will be safe with Jesus. The other day, our family went to a local swimming pool, and I was down at the deep end of the pool swimming some laps, and our four-year-old boy, Karsten, toddled his way up from the shallow end and sat on the edge of the pool to watch me. And as I came near the edge where he was sitting, he stopped me and he said, Dad, I want to go where you are. And I chuckled at his naivete a moment, and I said, well, Karsten, it's a lot deeper out there. The boy doesn't know how to swim. <laughs> he knows just enough to be dangerous, and when you combine that with a lot of courage, look out. And so he said, I don't care. I want to come with you anyway. I said, you just wait right there for a moment. I'll be right back. And I made my turn to take another lap. And as I began to approach that side of the pool again, I was about 10 feet away staring at the bottom of the pool when I saw a shadow and heard a massive splash. And I looked up to see him kind of pop back up to the surface and dog paddle flailing his way across five, six, seven, eight feet of water to try to get to me. And as I lunged toward him and he reached me, held around my neck as tight as he could, and he spit a bunch of water into my face. <laughs> but that look of panic that was on his face gave way to relief. Because next to his father, he felt secure. And it made very little difference at that point how deep or how dangerous the water was. Cling to your Heavenly Father. Gather to the Christ who invites you to stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me, you shall be in safekeeping. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for the promise that Jesus will hold us fast when we fail. It is hard to grasp the safety that we have in the Christ when the world around us continues to change, when we have at times unprecedented difficulty because of our desire to be with you, when our emotions get the best of us or when Satan attacks us. And yet, we see that we are safe with you. Give us great confidence. Give us great reliance. Help us in the moments of great doubt to cling to you as you cling to us. We pray for the sake of your glory. Amen.